0: Good morning, it's Thursday the 10th of August and this is Govindraj Thiraj based in Mumbai, India's financial capital, but now in transit. Our top reports and themes for the day, the Reserve Bank has to address food inflation even if it can do little to fight it. After finance, Adanis may sell stake in another consumer-facing business. It's now T plus 3 for initial public offers, means your stock will list in 3 days or money back. WeWork raises doubt about its survival after it issued a going-concern warning because its co-working clients are cancelling memberships at a faster clip. And a view on if and where the dust has settled on the EdTech frenzy with Pramath Sinha, founder, dean of the Indian School of Business. And, hmm, India's Ministry of Finance puts out a warning on matrimonial dating scams.
1: This is a core report with Govindraj Raj Atiraj.
0: A quick look at the top markets and business news. Don't expect too much. Remember, we are somewhere in a consolidation mode in the stock markets. They rallied towards the second half of Wednesday thanks to metal and other stocks. The BSE Sensex ended Wednesday's trading session with a gain of 149 points at 65,996. And the NSE Nifty 50 finally settled 62 points up. At 19,633. Speaking of markets, trigger happy initial public offer subscribers have good news coming their way. The Securities and Exchange Board of India has announced it will reduce the timeline for listing of initial public offers from the existing T plus 6 days to T plus 3 days, which means in three days from close of the offer. This also means that if you put money into an initial public offer and don't get allotment, it'll come back to you faster. And of course, if you get some shares, they too will come into your stocks account faster. Or DMAT account. The new rules shall be applicable on a voluntary basis for public issues opening on or after September 1st of this year and will become mandatory for issues opening on or after December 1st, 2023. Now, this is not a sudden decision. Discussions have been on for a while with various stakeholders and much feedback has been collected as well. On a general note, of course, this does demonstrate the continued and evolving sophistication of India's capital market system, something we tend to take for granted. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong in doing that either. Some company news, engineering and construction major LNT or Larsen & Tubro is the latest to announce a major clean energy thrust. Bloomberg is reporting that Larsen & Tubro plans to invest as much as $12 billion over the next five years, a third of which will go towards expanding its clean energy business. The company, who is usually the first port of call for most major construction projects in the country, says it will build 2-3 to million tonnes of green hydrogen and ammonia capacity with an investment of close to $4 billion. The hydrogen foray will kick off with the manufacture of electrolyzers in December that will be powered using renewable energy from Renew Power Private Limited to produce green hydrogen at the Indian Oil Corporation refinery in Panipat, Bloomberg News said. L&T will join the Ambani's and Adani's in announcing major green energy forays. Speaking of Adani's, reports say that they are now considering selling a 44% stake they have in consumer products and trading major Adani Wilmar, best known as the owner of the Fortune brand of cooking oils. Gautam Adani and his family may retain a minority stake in a personal capacity following a sale, Bloomberg once again reported, citing people. The company declined to comment and shares of the company fell somewhat on the news. Adani Wilmar reported a loss in the first quarter of the current year, hit by a fall in edible oil prices, which, by the way, was bad news for Adani Wilmar, but good news for all of us because it kept food inflation from shooting up further. Arani Wilmar is into several kitchen commodities including edible oils, wheat flour, rice, pulses and sugar. It was started in 1999 and has 23 manufacturing plants across India. Last year it bought the well-known Kohinoor brand of rice and it also sells basic wheat flour, wheat, basmati and non-basmati rice and even packaged sugar. The question, of course, is why would Adani Wilmar, which is on a relatively strong wicket despite the recent results setback and which was on an acquisition spree to shore up its presence in the food and consumer product segment, want to pull out? The answer, of course, is that Adani is now seeing this as non-core and saying so as well, and focusing more on infrastructure-infrastructure-linked and energy businesses, which in turn could well be an outcome of the Hindenburg Research Report saga, which saw the stocks of all group companies being hammered, leading to a $150 billion slump in the value of the group stocks. Last month, the Adanis also sold 90% in Adani Capital to Bain Capital, a US-based investor, thus exiting the finance and non-bank finance business. I'm happy that a credible investor like Bain is stepping in now and this will help the business grow manifold from here, Reuters quoted Gautam Adani, chairman of the group, saying. Tomatoes and India's Credit Policy Today is Credit Policy Day, where we all expectedly wait for the Reserve Bank of India to pronounce judgment on interest rates and of course our very lives. Top of the list of the Reserve Bank and everyone in government, I would imagine, and hope, is obviously inflation, particularly of food. As we discussed yesterday, wheat prices are now up to a six-month high. Rice prices are high too and are not going down despite a clampdown on exports. On the contrary, the clampdown seems to have had an opposite effect, going by a conversation I had last week with Vinod Call head of India's Rice Exporters Association. Incidentally, Bloomberg is reporting that rice prices have soared to the highest in almost 15 years in Asia on mounting concerns over global supplies as dry weather threatens production in Thailand and after India banned exports of non-Basmati rice. Now that leaves tomatoes and the like whose prices shot up so much that they sent the overall price of an average Indian thali by 28% up, that is, just between June and July. And the prognosis is not very good either, and I will come to that momentarily. The RBI incidentally had said that the recent spike in tomato prices on account of crop damage due to inclement weather and pest attacks in the major production belts has received widespread attention as it has taken a toll on households' budgets. Tomato, being a highly perishable item with a very short crop duration, exhibits considerable seasonal variation in prices, but these episodes are short-lived. So the question is whether indeed these episodes will be short-lived, as the RBI says, or perhaps hopes. So far, actually, it does not appear so. In general, just to take a step back, food items constitute almost 40% of the consumer price inflation index and everything, including, by the way, olive oil prices, are skyrocketing. Inflation data for July will come next week, that's August 15th. So right now, we are at over 4.8% and the question, of course, is what will the Reserve Bank do on a day like this at a time when food prices are going up? Well, you should not do much, I'm assuming, because there is little or no connection between the two. And that would be an admittance that the government's other moves like clamping down on exports of rice are not working, which, of course, they don't seem to be. And when I say the Reserve Bank should be doing something, of course, the usual reference is to either raising or dropping interest rates. Now, to come back to prices of food items, one thing that's pretty clear is that we have little control over it, and that control too, using existing tools, will only diminish in coming months and years. The big reason for that is climate change, which we touched upon the day before as well. For example, higher rains almost inevitably are leading to higher prices and not the other way around, which you might intuitively be tempted to believe. And as things stand, tomatoes are only a part of the problem, maybe the most visible part. Onions are already joining the race. To understand more on this, I reached out to Pushan Sharma, Director Research at ratings agency CRISL, whose team recently authored that report, which talked about how the price of a thali had shot up 28% in a month. I began by asking him to break up the thali for us and also more importantly where we were going next and what we could expect. So the key driver as we see it right now
2: has been the sharp increase in tomato prices. Tomato which was retailing around 33 rupees per kg shot up to about 110 rupees per kg from between June and July. That is about 233% increase in prices and that's been the key contributor. The sharp increase in the vegetarian thali prices. You would also observe that between the vegetarian and non vegetarian thali, there is a deviation in terms of the overall percentage increase. And that's largely because the broiler chicken prices, which has a lion's share in the non vegetarian thali, that has uh, declined in prices by about 3 to 5%. Interesting.
0: And the prices of tomato would have gone up further since the time you've recorded it. So, what could that hike now be if it was 28% from June to July? So, what could it be from July to August?
2: Right. So, while the average prices in July were around 110, if we look at the data right now, it's around 140-150 rupees per kg. So, that's a further 30% additional increase and that could contribute around about a 3% additional increase for the thali cost, other ingredients being almost at the similar level provided.
0: And does it also say that tomato uh, or the consumption of it is somewhat inelastic in the Indian household?
2: I wouldn't say it's completely inelastic, but however, it is a key ingredient. I mean, traditionally, uh, tomato is basically used for sourness and traditionally tamarind was used. A lot of people use also mangoes, for example, for sourness. I mean, these are some of the substitutes that people are using. But at large, uh, one could say that given that it's very important as an ingredient, it still occupies a good share in a person's uh, weekly purchase
0: yeah pushan and i can see how a lot of people would want to get you on food shows too because you know to give the right uh, uh, the, the right ingredient at the right cost to achieve the same taste of course so tell me about you know the other components which could also drive inflation and what are you looking at as you look ahead
2: right so you know as we look ahead uh, what we see is that one thing that one has to keep in mind is rainfall and its bearing on some of these sensitive crops so we have two categories of crops in india field crops crops like paddy wheat and pulses, and then we have the horticulture crops that are vegetable and fruits. Now, vegetable and fruits tend to be quite sensitive to temperature as well as changes in the monsoon pattern and that is what needs to be monitored and that's what has actually caused this burst in prices across vegetable crops. Uh, July saw about a 13% higher than normal rainfall and that has led to the prices of not just tomato but many other vegetables increasing. Over the short term, we see the prices of many of these vegetables being elevated in the month of August. By mid-September, we're expecting that tomato prices could start moderating. And that's with supply coming in from Maharashtra and Karnataka. But what is really important here is that onion, another critical ingredient in the Indian thali, that could spring a surprise for consumers. And to understand the reason why onion could spring a surprise, one would have to zoom back and look at the temperature pattern in February. February this year saw higher temperatures than normal and March saw unseasonal rainfall. Now, the Rabi season, which sees about 70% of India's onion production, the arrival start typically coming in the month of March. But because of higher temperatures in February, the crop matured early. Typically, this crop has a shelf life about 6 months. Now, because of these weather conditions, the shelf life is expected to reduce to about 5 months. So, each year, We have a lean period when it comes to onion towards the end of September and then the fresh arrival starts coming into the market by October, which is the Kharif onion. This year, because of reduction in shelf life, we might be exhausting a large amount of the onion stock by early September itself, which will lead to an expansion in the lean period and prices could start escalating in the month of September. We're already seeing some early signs of that happening in the month of August. That's one critical ingredient that is going to see uh, prices going up. Vegetable prices too could be elevated between uh, August and September. And the consumer could just see some relief only by around October uh, when the fresh Kharif harvest starts coming into the market.
0: And uh, Pushan, you're drawing a clear link between excess rainfall and high prices, which was not so evident, I'm assuming, in previous years and definitely not intuitive to any normal consumer or even perhaps a slightly more observant person.
2: Right. What we're seeing over the past few years, that climate is really playing a very critical role. We're seeing low rainfall in the month of June. The past couple of years have seen excessive rainfall towards the end of September and early October. Now, these months are very critical from a harvest point of view. So if it rains, even this year, one will need to monitor how it rains towards the end of September and early October. If that happens, then we can see the prices continuing to be elevated even in the month of October, right? So climate change is here and uh, we are observing it manifesting itself in terms of higher prices for some of the sensitive crops like vegetables.
0: And it's not just vegetables, but any crop where there could be high rain or excess rain, as we saw in July, you could see higher prices.
2: That's true. And not just higher rain, but I would say, like we are talking right now about thali, but something which is not outside now within the thali, but something like cotton. In case the cotton crop sees higher temperatures, it is prone to more ballworm attacks, pink ball, ball warm, and that can lead to lower yield for the cotton crop. So not just the food items, but even other agricultural commodities could potentially see an impact of elevated temperatures or even higher
0: rainfall. Higher rain. Pushan, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks. Thanks. Meanwhile, our website www.thecore.in and our consulting editor Anjali Bhargava is profiling Pramath Raj Sinha, now founder and chairman of Harappa Education, in this morning's edition. Sinha, a former McKinsey & Company partner, is also founding dean of the Indian School of Business and a founder of the Ashoka University and generally seen as a force of nature in the higher education business in India. I used this opportunity to reach out to him to get a broader sense on the education landscape in a very short bite particularly after all the implosions that were happening in India in the K-12 or kindergarten to 12th grade space. See, this transition, Govind,
1: is inevitable. And I think it's required, it's necessary, because the offline world has not provided historically and even now quality education to our young people, whether it is in schools or college. And many are still not able to even access any form of education, at least in the higher ed or in the high school space. So tech and online education, dissemination through digital technologies, self-paced learning is a reality. I think our children have to be prepared for it. Parents should bring up their children to get used to the online world. There's been a little bit of a Undermining of the credibility of online because of how some players have tried to profit from it. And that always happens, you know, this, right? In any new revolutionary shift, some people try to create value out of it. They go the extra distance, which compromises the delivery, the promise, and then that undermines the credibility. So I do think that we have to rebuild that credibility because it's not good for the future of our children, for the future of our society, our country and and just the world. Because this is something that's here to stay. And I think we all need to play our part to be much more responsible and to say, hey,
0: this is a good thing. We should all learn to leverage it for the future of mankind and humanity. And uh, how could we do that? So an extreme example is perhaps China, which said that it would regulate all kinds of online education, including maybe the advertising that went into it or the high decibel advertising and marketing push that went into it. I guess we are not going to do that, though there have been proposals, including floated by the government on doing things along this line. So at this point, since there has been an implosion of sorts in the ed tech space down to, let's say, corporate governance issues in one major player which in turn creates its own set of problems. Where are we headed and how do we manage this situation, so to speak, here on?
1: You know, I am not one for over-regulation and for controlling this because for anything in our country, we need technology-based education even more than any other place. So I would not allow the failure, I would say, of one or two entities get in the way. Look, in the higher ed space, everybody's doing a good job. It's actually not uh, been a problem at all. I'm very, full disclosure, very involved in higher ed online with UpGrad, Harappa. And you see around the world, uh, whether it's the other higher educational programs, it's really in the K-12 space that we've seen some rumbles. And let's allow us to write this out and we'll be okay. I think that has happened in sector after sector. I think a knee-jerk reaction to try and regulate, control, you know, tell people what to do would be a bad thing for the growth of
0: this very important technological advancement. So the two organizations that you've been closely associated with—one is Indian School of Business, and then Ashoka—are also fine examples of you know strong interpersonal interactions, university, the physical campus, and so on. Therefore, I guess. There is a lot of merit in that model. I mean, should we be forcing, let's say, the tech version of this when we've seen so much success offline?
1: No, we haven't seen success offline go in because that quality of education is not available to everybody. And given the scale of how many people we have to educate, that old model of building classrooms, campuses, bringing in faculty will only go so far. So I think we should not see it as a neither or. I think it's an and. You will need offline and online. And by the way, education is now not going to be three years, four years, two years. It's going to be lifelong. So people will choose to go back to campus for some time, but do a lot of stuff online. They will do some just-in-time by going online. They'll take some time off and go and spend some time on campus. Not everybody will be able to afford time or money to go to a campus. They will only read online. So I think it's going to be a nice mix. It's great. Uh, for us to have the choice and for young people to have the choice, especially because you have to continue
0: to learn life. And that sounds perfectly fine. And I think something that we could all look forward to in the higher education space. But this couldn't apply, I would imagine, in the K-12 space, children.
1: Of course, in the K-12 space, Govind, we have to be a bit more responsible because we owe it to our children to make sure that they all know basic math, language. They know how the world works, whether it's geography or physics or astronomy. So there we do have a bit of an obligation. And I do think that there we have to make sure that only quality survives and people take this seriously, that you could actually do untold damage if you don't do a good job. I do think that parents and students will become smarter about this as they go forward. Many of them are. They can look through this and uh, they will go for the services or they will go for the institutions that offer high quality you can see that happening with schools today right uh, in any city or any town even in a small village people know which are the good schools so i do think that as people become more aware of what this additional tool instead of going to tuition classes you can go to khan academy for example Instead of going to buy some expensive tablet and subscribe to years of learning, you can have access to multiple sources of content, some of which are free and very high quality, some of which are not. So you'll find people coming up who will curate content for you and so on. So I think we're just seeing the birth of a whole new way of learning. And it's very, very early and nascent stages of that. I think this is going to completely change the world. Very much how books change the future of learning. That is how the classroom model, the teacher model, the one book teaching physics all over the world model happened. I think you're going to see that kind of fundamental shift happen. And we are just at the
0: beginning of that. Pramod, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you, Govind, for having me. Speaking of implosions, we work, remember them, on Tuesday, it raised doubt about its ability to stay in business as the co working space provider faced losses and a dwindling cash pile, the Wall Street Journal reported. It said that as a result of our losses, which have been impacted by the recent increases in member churn, substantial doubts exist about the company's ability to continue as a going concern. Now, the company's stock is down more than 95% since its public listing, with an estimated market capitalization of around 450 million as of Tuesday. SoftBank, the investor that once painted a future where machines would take over human beings, has likely lost billions of dollars on its investment. WeWork was also one of the world's most valuable startups, worth about $47 billion at peak. On Tuesday, it said that excess supply of commercial real estate, greater competition for flexible space, and uncertain economic conditions resulted in losses in the second quarter as well, the Wall Street Journal said. Meanwhile, WeWork India, the local arm told CNBC-TV18, there was no impact on its business in the country. WeWork India is backed by the Embassy Group, a real estate firm which holds a majority stake of around 71% in the partnership. And hmm, India's finance ministry warns about dating scams. India's Ministry of Finance on Wednesday cautioned people against fraudsters extorting money in the name of Indian customs. Indian customs here refers to those ladies and gentlemen in white who you usually encounter after immigration and just before you can get out of the airport, who will of course scan your luggage very carefully. Sharing a post on matrimonial dating scam on X. commonly known as Twitter, the ministry stated that Indian Customs would never call or send a text message asking people to pay customs duty through a personal bank account, the business standard reported. The ministry stated that all communication from the Indian Customs contains a document identification number, or DIN, which can be verified on the official site of the Central Board of Indirect Taxes and Customs, that's CBIC. Beware of fraudsters extorting money in the name of Indian Customs. Indian Customs never calls or sends SMSs to pay customs duty in a personal bank account, the ministry said. Several cases of such scams have been reported in the last year. In May, a police sub-inspector's wife was cheated out of 3.6 lakh rupees in Mumbai by a fraud posing as a customs officer who promised her gold at a cheaper rate, according to the Hindustan Times. Now this of course does not mean that you can dump or delete notices from the income tax department, which is also under the Ministry of Finance, which might be seeking information quite genuinely from you. They will most likely be real notices. Of course you should verify, but don't wait too long. On that note, that's it from me for today. Have a great day ahead and see you tomorrow. This was the core report with me. Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in that is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at thecore.in Thank you for listening.